You're listening to the Skift Podcast. On today's episode, Skift founder and CEO Rafid Ali speaks with Parag Khanna, the founder and CEO of Climate Alpha and managing partner of FutureMap, about how globalization is thriving despite a fragmented geopolitical landscape and challenges to supply chains. The conversation also touches on the importance of immigration, inward migration, and adapting to climate change while respecting people's need to travel. For more like this and the latest in travel news, visit skift.com. Enjoy the conversation. The context is all the noise, all these new words that are emerging, deglobalization, mm-hmm. polycrisis, this was a panic yeah. word of Thomas yeah, of last ended. week, yeah. <laughs> and um, I've followed the deglobalization threads over the last year, year and a right. half. Yeah. Um, there's definitely merit to it, mm-hmm. as in um, the technologies are now advanced enough that local manufacturing can, can happen at scale right. using 3D printers, mm-hmm. AI, everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, clashing with the, the challenges of the geopolitical challenges and Russia war and yeah. uh, supply chain issues, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You have done. Not only PhD in this, you've written mm-hmm. books and books on it yeah. for years, and um, uh, and you obviously are very well traveled, global traveler as well. Wow. So the we almost did a mega trend this year on deglobalization until we started writing it and saying there's not enough here for us to write. Good instinct, yeah. And and <laughs> that's why when I started following your pushback on right. deglobalization. Uh, is when I and I knew you were. Uh, we, we we exchanged emails and you were coming here. So so that's what I want to pick yeah, up on. Totally. The glo- uh, So, give us a sense of where globalization is today, and then we'll talk. What okay. does it mean for travel? So I'm pleased to report that globalization is alive and well. You know, global trade volumes in goods have reached or returned to nearly record levels, about $6 trillion a year in global goods trade. We know that a lot of what the what hit global trade took had a lot to do just with supply chain shocks and the pandemic. And even with the fragmentation of the global trading system and competitive movements around rules and regulations and nationalism and nearshoring and and industrial policy. Despite all of that, you have global goods trade surging. It's also worth pointing out, and this is often ignored by people who comment on global trade and globalization, they ignore the digital, right? But global digital services in 2022 hit $5 trillion, which is very close to the value of goods trade. So when you really look, talk about trade, you really should be doing a lot more than counting the number of dishwashers that are on containers and pass through the Suez Canal. That's a very narrow and antiquated way of understanding trade. And in any case, trade alone isn't just globalization. You have to look at finance and capital flows. You still have trillions of dollars moving around the world. The sovereign wealth funds and asset managers um, of Wall Street and London have realized that, okay, we're back to a world where the high growth is going to be in the emerging markets and in Asia. So they're pouring trillions of dollars into those markets. That, by the way, is called globalization. You know, um, And then, of course, migration, right? You know, what, what you and I are most passionate about, um, travel, tourism, uh, cross-border movement, relocation. 
is surging, you know, in ways that when you and I last spoke, you know, early during COVID, there was a lot of pessimism about it. But you and I agreed that we will find ways to learn from this shock and to enable greater mobility, and that the secular uh, tailwinds that drive migration, which is to say labor shortages, geopolitical risks, climate change, the search for a better life, family connections, that's all still there. Right. You know, COVID didn't end it. And in many ways, it just exposed um, how much societies continue to depend on migration. And so the big takeaway, which we didn't have in early 2020, but we can look at right now in early 2023, just one anecdote, one metric, the number of countries that have nomad visa programs, right? It was one before 2020. It's 100 now. And that's not, that was not coordinated, right? That was not uh, dictated by the United Nations. A hundred countries realized overnight during COVID that you need people, right? You need, you need travelers, business travelers, tourists, entrepreneurs, taxpayers, renters, um, you know, people come in your conferences and events and that disappeared. And that's when we learned to appreciate what was missing, which is people. And without enabling circulation and travel of people, so much of your economy is going to suffer. And so now 100 countries, maybe 150 countries, everyone is starting to appreciate how important travel cross-border movement is. And I think that's that augurs very well for the future of globalization. Um, so I'll come to the travel part in a bit as well again. But in terms of, uh, so where is this talk of globalization coming from? Mm -hmm. It's coming from the fact that people believe that a geopolitically fractured world, a world in which China is clearly a, uh, a pillar of a, as a superpower and has more trading partners than the United States does, where it's the number one trading partner, is going to lead to a, a splintering of rules. And that applies not only to the standards of goods, but also, of course, technology and so on. That's simply a false premise. It's false based upon thousands of years of history. And it's also false in terms of what's happening right now. Um, and that's why the same people who are talking about deglobalization are also talking about re-globalization in the same breath, because it's globalization is all of those things put together, you know, different strands being pulled and tugged at the same time. Just because China has its set of rules and America has its set of rules and Europe has its set of rules, it doesn't mean you get deglobalization. You just have a more competitive globalization. But the sum total of trade is still, again, expanding, right? So just because the rules are being, globalization doesn't mean that you have one set of rules. Again, it, it's, an, it's a, an aggregate value, let's say, of, right. those, uh, of those transactions. So, but when you take the very specific case of nearshoring and industrial policy, right, people say, okay, well, the Biden administration has passed this Inflation Redu Reduction Act and, uh, you know, Buy American and all of these kinds of things. But the truth is, even to execute that, you need more globalization. Why? Well, let's take the simple example of the iPhone. You want to make an iPhone in Texas, right? Where does the screen come from? Where does the lens come from? Where does the camera come from? Where do some of the chips come from? Oh, they come from Korea. They come from Japan, right? They come from Malaysia. They come from China. So you're importing things into America in order to say you made them in America. So what you've just done is to widen the trade deficit to expand your trade deficit in order to make things at home and claim that you are deglobalized. It doesn't, mathematically, does not add up at all. Let's take another simple example, which is the 3D printer, right? This vaunted contraption, everyone will have one in their backyard or on their kitchen counter. By the way, I still have not, has the 3D printer, I mean, I'm, uh, 
Well, let's and take my let's take my son's three D printer. My son says, you know, oh, I've got a three D printer. I can make my own stuff, right? And it'll be made in Singapore, a country that doesn't make a lot of physical things. Obviously, being a tiny country, but guess what? Well, the three D printer itself came from the Czech Republic, made by a German company with parts that came from uh, all over Asia and from obviously, if you trace the supply chain, my minerals and metals that probably came from Africa. Then it was shipped over, and then you need those plastic cartridges, right? Well, where did the plastic cartridges came from? Well, they came from China, actually, and those have to be shipped over down uh, using Alibaba Express or whatever, right? So for every act of deglobalization, it requires tons of globalization. Right. And so whenever people say in America, we're going we're to 3D print everything, it's like, okay, where did your 3D printer came, come from? Oh, you imported it, right? And, and those cartridges of stuff, whatever it is you want to print, whether it's metal, plastics, organic matter, food, it came from somewhere, right? Chances are the seeds when you're doing a 3D printed food contraption, well, they probably came from Brazil or the Netherlands, right? So I like to say the supply chain has a supply chain and the supply chain, supply chain has a supply chain. And all you have to do is keep on tracing that to see that globalization is such a deep and intimate part of every single thing we do, save for two people sitting face to face and speaking with each other. Pretty much every other transaction involves globalization in some way. So in terms of uh, on the policy level and the political will, yeah. uh, certainly any talk of deglobalization is good for politicians mm -hmm. to say, you know, jobs, local, right. all this other stuff. And at the same time, the countries are, are indicating otherwise in terms right. of you know, trade and, and immigrant. Even, so is, are they trying to talk both sides of their mouth on this, typically? It's not wrong to want to create jobs, to want to have a strong domestic industrial base and to have that be secure on national security grounds and to be self-reliant in the event of supply chain disruptions or a pandemic. I, I deeply applaud and support every single one of those goals if it's fulfilled executed in a way that's cost effective, right? And not uh, duplicative, wasteful or corrupt, you know, and every country is doing that. Asian countries, European countries, and America. It's not a new idea. It's called mercantilism. You know, it's, it's a 450-year-old economic idea practiced primarily by European colonial powers, and now the whole world does it. I think we're all on the same playing field now, quite frankly. It's all out in the open. But what happens along the way is you realize, okay, well, I've saturated my domestic market. You know, I now make most of what I, um, you know, consume most of what I make and so forth, but I've got big industrial titans we're too small for our own good. We want to export, right? We want to conquer the world. How do you do that? It's called globalization. You've got to go out there and compete for those other markets. So you do have both happening at the same time. And again, this is not theory. United States, Canada, and Mexico enjoy better relations than they have in quite a while. They've just signed the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement during COVID, making it a really robust you know, NAFTA plus kind of area. Uh, each trades more with each other than, than the United States trades with China, for example. So there genuinely is a North American Union type of style arrangement forming. And yet, if you really want to make the most of that, the reason why American car manufacturers are relocating production to Mexico is because Mexico is part of trade agreements with Brazil and part of the Trans-Pacific Partnership Trade Agreement with Asia. So you Americans will make things in Mexico in order to more competitively export them to Japan and to Australia. So again, all you have to do is follow the money, follow the manufacturing, follow the supply chain, follow the exports, and you'll see that everyone is plotting for 
more globalization, more competitive globalization. They're not just nearshoring. Your own market will never be big enough. And that's true even of China, which is the biggest economy in the world, the largest population in the world. Well, now India is larger by population. But China has known for a long time that even being the biggest economy with the most manufacturing, with the most people, is still not enough for China. That's why they're out there competing all over the world. Yeah. So none of this is new. We're just, you know, you, you alluded to the politicians where it's self-serving and short-term, and that's, that's, you know, it's just having half a conversation. In terms of uh, moving to movement of people, you were in your last book, Move, uh, was very much about movement of people as a result of the different forces that are coming in the world. Um, have, and you, you, when I talked to you two years ago, you were giving the example of UK, even with Brexit, they were yeah. actually, they, there's, it's easier mm-hmm. now to, to come to UK um, than it was pre-Brexit, yeah. when the whole point of Brexit was to lock down yeah. uh, and be mm-hmm. focused on their own country. So what's the state of, you know, two years after you wrote the book, what's the state of, you right. know, like a general sense of what, what people's movements right. are? So, you know, there's the global aggregate, like numerical answer, which is, wow, you know, way better than anyone thought in 2020 and by some measures better than ever. And you guys know this literally that you have absolute data better than anyone else. Travel is back in a huge way. It's global. It's within regions. It's across regions. Can't get a plane ticket. It's very expensive. Everyone's on the move. Again, everyone's competing to host people and to and uh, bring down those visa barriers. The number of countries that are doing visa on arrival and nomad visas, like we talked about earlier, is at record levels. So it's not a frictionless world by any stretch of the imagination. But we're also finally unlocking those those digital capabilities to make things slightly more seamless. And again, just like remote work. We've had the internet for a while, we've had the capacity for remote work for a while, but we didn't act on it. Well, then the COVID forced us to act on it. So now it's like you've got a crush of over a billion people crossing borders every single year. It's not sensible to make all of them stand in front of front of bulletproof glass and apply, you know, for things and, and you know, cross every T and dot every I. So you have digital platforms emerging. Governments during COVID had to cope with foreign students coming in, right? And um, so, of course, they had to go digital and just say, you know, just here's your digital e-visa, student visa, print it out, put in your passport, do it yourself. So, we're, you know, travel is now going to be um, very positively disrupted and use these technologies that have been available all along, you know, QR codes, platforms, blockchain, um, standardized uh, data collation, you know, for whether it's your bank records, your criminal history, your student certifications, all of that, and of course visas, right? So I think that we're in the early post-COVID phase of a five to 10 year process where um, you know your passport will matter less than your credentials, your bona fides that you can have on the blockchain, have secure, give access to as needed to the requisite authorities, and you'll get cleared for entry into countries. And this brings you to, brings us to the UK. You know, despite Brexit and so forth, it is in fact easier to move to the UK today than, than, than ever. And they've now declared that you just, if you are a graduate of one of 150 or whatever universities in the world, just show a legit, you know, kind of diploma, boom, you're in. They used to require you pay a security bond and you have to have a job, confirmed job, uh, you know, letter of a, of, of, um, of a job offer. They don't even do that anymore. Just show up and you're in. 
right? And that's the UK. Look at Canada, right? 500,000 new migrants every single year, poaching them from the US, taking them from Asia, all over the world. So the big trend in the world today is not populism, protectionism, nationalism, xenophobia. The noise in media is certainly that. The noise in the media is always going to be negative, isn't it? Right? Like by definition. But the ground truth, just look at the numbers. I always look at the numbers. Look at people voting with their feet. Look at the trade flows. Do the, do the, these are not debatable figures. The number of people across the borders is not something we're going to debate. Is it higher or lower? It's higher. End of story, right? So, um, you know, I think that the reality is actually a much more positive story, and the technology backing that emerging reality is an even more positive story because the potential is limitless. And all of this is happening at a time when more countries have realized that they have labor shortages, right. that they have very high dependency ratios, that they have very high debt to GDP ratios, that they need taxpayers, entrepreneurs, caregivers, construction workers, garbage collectors, you name it. And who is that? Well, that's young, young people. So the theme, you know, the main theme of that book was the war for young talent. And now I genuinely believe that every country, like literally no country in the world does not realize that either you're losing your young people, which is a bad situation, or you're gaining them, which is a good thing. So I boil down my differentiation. You know, when I'm sorting out winners and losers of the 21st century, despite all the complexity of the world, I boil it down to one sentence. Are you attracting young people or not? And I think every country's realized that you want to be on the right side of that equation. But it seems, uh, in all the examples you gave, UK, Canada, um, even Dubai, UAE, not the Golden Visa. Totally. Um, uh, even there's some rumblings that Saudi at some point will have, yeah. you know, with the opening up of what, totally. what's happening there. Uh, they want, you know, 100 million tourists and yeah. all this stuff they're building. Who's going to build it for them? I mean, right. obviously immigrants currently are, but yeah. now they need more people to run that stuff. It will come from local Saudis, but also oh, local yeah. folks. Um, U.S. in terms of immigration, uh, President Biden has still held on to whatever Trump brought it down to, and so. Where does U.S. figure today in terms of in, right. in your, as you, you know, your your company, <clears throat> Climate Alpha looks at where people are moving to and what does it mean for the real estate industry? So, in your estimation, what is U.S. missing or what is it doing right. right? If it's doing something right. Well, let me first mention that I use Saudi as one of the case studies in the book because I point out that just as COVID kicked off, the largest movement of people in the world during COVID was Indians and Pakistanis leaving Saudi Arabia to go back to their home countries because construction activity froze and they were already in the process of trying to reduce their dependency on foreign workers. So you could genuinely have made a deglobalization argument in the case of Saudi when it comes to migration. Here we are, if you want to build lots of smart cities and you want to be a tourism hub and you want to be an innovation hub and an AI hub, it turns out, oh, you are going to need a lot of Indians, right? So they're back in a big way. So even that story is one of return to globalization, return to the norm, return to the flows and movements of workers. And the United States too. So it's a perfect example of this recognition that um, you know, on a small scale, it's like you know, the excess mortality during COVID is due to a nursing shortage, right? The UK also. It would have been better to have more nurses and caregivers rather than a shortage of them. And then a huge shortage of workers, even if it's low unemployment, right? Record low unemployment in the United States and record worker shortages at the same time. Right. Well, there's only one way you can fill that, right? It's immigration because fertility has gone way down, childbirth is way down. 
And then the skills mismatch, right? Americans aren't, don't have the skills that are needed for these high growth areas, whether it's medicine or IT. So the Biden administration has recognized this. The immigration statistics um, and the 180 degree turnaround are staggering. The United States hit more or less a record low in 2021 during COVID, 244,000 net inward migrants. That's abysmally low. Canada was way higher with one-tenth the population. Germany was way higher given the Ukrainian refugee crisis and ongoing migration from the Middle East. And now, 2022, what was the figure? Well, it was nearly about 800,000 people, right? So only America can go from record low to back to normal, right? Leading the world in net inward migration overnight. And that's not only a sign of political change, obviously, but just policy changes around clearing out H-1B visa backlogs and all of these kinds of things. And obviously just having a different political tone in the country. Now what they need to do, obviously, is to... Um, uh, streamline the process. You know, you and I and every Indian knows. Uh, you know, people who are caught in the um, you know in the background. You know, and so it's bad, but they're learning. And you can, if you go into the into the weeds of what's happening within uh, the government accountability office, and you look at policy changes in INS and so forth, they're trying to follow a Canadian style model. You know, how much of this can we put online? Um, how much of this paperwork can we digitize? and make this more seamless? And what legislation do we have to change to um, you know, clear out backlogs and, and expand the quotas and so yeah, on? Yeah, we've been covering so, quite a bit. Yeah. We spoke to the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Visa Services. We did a story right. two days ago in India. She, says, she said that India is an exceptional case today right. in terms of the visa wait times. Even that, they're brought down from like 1,000 days to 500. 500 right. is still unacceptably uh, exactly. crazy. Exactly, yeah. Uh, so you and I both know what's wrong I'm pointing to what things are going to have this kind of, you know, a, a big hockey stick impact in terms of the positive change, because we know that they're being implemented at a technical level and that you have strong political momentum to support them. So the bottom bottom line is that there's positive news around the corner on this issue and that so long as uh, the political will holds, and that doesn't mean that you know Democrats have to control the White House, you know, forever for this to maintain. I actually see on the Republican side as well enough recognition around this issue of labor shortages and impacts innovation, dynamism, GDP, the tax base, and so on. So I actually think that there is um, you know early bipartisan recognition that if you do immigration right and it's fair, right, not that um, you know you have. I think the noise is very much about on the, the illegal uh, side. The illegal side. And the illegal side is a lot larger now than than the legal side in terms of net volume, and that that's a, that's an issue, and it is a fairness issue, and a humanitarian issue, a legal issue, a political issue, a lightning rod, all at the same time. But if we stick just to legal uh, immigration, you know, then um, you know we can clearly see a recognition that we we need those skills, and that. When people want to take their life savings and come to your country and be a good contributor to society, again, to my point earlier, you're better off being desired as a destination than not being desired as a destination. So, um, you know, America better remember to take advantage of it because at the same time as all this, you have competition. You know, Canada, UK, Germany. I wrote about all of these educational systems that are changing their language of instruction to English. 
just to get the best and the brightest from around the world. And the brand of America since 9-11, you know, has obviously come down a bit. And, and young people, by definition, don't remember that triumphant cold, post-Cold War world and ideology and system of rules. And they, they have different ambitions. You know, they really are global and rootless. So the notion that they will pick that one place and that place has to be America and every smart young person that wants to come here, that, that ceased to be true a while ago. You can again see it in the student numbers. Um, so, but I welcome a world in which young people, I see it from the perspective of the young person, not the, the incumbent power, right? And, and to me, there's never been a better time to be a young and skilled person. If you are young and skilled of any nationality and can prove it, the world is literally your oyster, mm -hmm. the whole world. And that is absolutely beautiful. Um, one of the things I was struck by in your book when I read it early on, you see, uh, I, I read it before it came on, on um, it, it was published because you sent me a copy of it. But one of the things I was struck by on how, I think that one of the biggest things that prognosticators got wrong was uh, population. As you said, everybody thought this was going to be a giant crisis in the world, and um, and uh, and all, everybody got it wrong. Yeah. And the implications of uh, of that has just been, at, which is what we're talking about: labor shortages. All, you, your whole book is built around why why migration, uh, based on getting that wrong, is, right. is is so important. This is also the year, as we just talked about, where India's population is uh, surpassing China. The demographic dividend that India has for the next 20, 30, 40 years yeah. is incredible versus yeah. China falling off a cliff. So, uh, talk about the uh, the sort of what we got wrong the population and how big it is in in, yeah. in, in where where we're going. Yeah, I mean, if we were talking 20 years ago, the population forecast was, um, you know, that it would reach something like 13, 14 billion people. And now it's been revised downward very significantly, right? The new consensus is that the world population will probably never reach 10 billion people. Um, I put it at 9.5, let's say, and that's by 2040, 2045. And so we're pretty much right around the corner from what I call peak humanity, right? The maximum human population. And we're almost there already today. And so we, <clears throat> and because of the uh, age imbalance in the world, uh, you know, a huge number of aging people, um, as baby boomers start to pass on, uh, towards the latter part of this decade and into the 2030s, the world population um, will re reach that peak sooner than we thought and even begin to decline you know, rapidly right after that, pretty steeply actually. And then you have all sorts of other things to think about like um, um, uh, you know, war and conflict and obviously climate change as well, which is taking its toll. Um, so the bottom line is that you, know, you have a, a plateau in the world population, but the world is still more young than old, right? You know, five and a half billion people are either millennials, Gen Z, or Gen Alpha. So the three largest generations that the human species have ever produced uh, are alive today, and they are young. So the future is going to be dominated by today's young people numerically. And again, where they go, how they go with their feet determines the winners and the losers of, of societies because there aren't children coming afterwards. For the last 100 years, every generation got bigger than the one before it. Right. But that has stopped happening. 
Therefore, if our children don't have children, and our children are just not having children globally, that's just a fact. Again, you need to get today's young people in your country, right, to live in your country. So that that's how that's how the global demographic piece, which is so unique and novel and unprecedented in human history, there's absolutely no, you know, nothing can psychologically prepare us for this. We have no history of what's happening right now. But how that intersects with something so mundane, like immigration policy, visas, you know, this kind of stuff. Everything. The yeah. thing that I was, also another thing, so, um, Japan, and you spend a bunch of time in Japan, yeah. you, you know the country very well. Um, New York Times has been doing this series of um, countries with declining populations. Yep. They've done stories in China, Japan, obviously. Yep. Two days ago, they did a story of booming tourism in Japan. So it's it's so ironic and fascinating yep. for if you're if you're right. observing both sides, which is nobody to really take care of anybody in Japan, but tourism is back right. in full swing. Yeah, and when you go to hotels in Japan, and we just spent a couple of weeks there over the the holidays. You'll find a lot more foreign staff when you go to a grocery store or a restaurant. Which is incredible for a country that has yeah. been so close to um, foreigners. It's just been so insular culturally for a long time, but under the radar, and I think again, this is clearly documented, it's just that our external mental model and bias has not changed to keep up with the times. But Japan has never had more foreigners living in Japan in 7,000 years of recorded history. Um, you know, there's a, nearly two and a half million foreigners in Japan, and they're Chinese, they're Korean, they're Vietnamese, Filipinos, uh, expats from Western countries, Australians. Um, people are flocking there to work in finance, technology, education, uh, travel and tourism, hospitality, you name it. And, uh, and indeed, it's such a civilized, placid, modern, wonderful, culturally rich country that it's a, a, such a charming place to go and spend time. So we, we saw tourists that are spending weeks and weeks just traveling around the country and visiting different onsens and going to Mount Fuji and riding the Shinkansen trains and doing skiing and cherry blossoms. I mean, there's it's an amazing place. And But making it home and their immigration policy is actually changing. I've sat with their, their ministers who I know who are writing this legislation. Um, it's kind of like Italy. Italy started off, it was kind of like a gimmick, like we'll sell you a home for a right. euro, you can buy a whole town for 50,000 euro. And that started in very deprived areas like Sicily and southern Italy. And now it's spread to be even outside Milan, which is a thriving, you know, modern European metropolis. Um, Japan, same thing, right? It started out only Japanese people can get the cheap fixer-upper home, you know, for, you know, free, basically. Pretty soon they're going to have, you know, and first of all, Japan is an open economy for foreign investment in real estate. So if you can get a mortgage from a local bank, you can just buy a property or something. So it's these technical smaller regulations that are being fixed where it's like, you know what, foreigners can have access to the banking system, foreigners can have access to the mortgage market, foreigners can buy whatever homes they want. So just like Italy, it started out as a gimmick meant for locals and soon it becomes a global feeding frenzy with like HGTV television shows, home gardening TV, you know, profiling families that have said, we're going to go and settle in Italy. Now it's going to be Japan. And Japan has a um, huge brand advantage and desirability edge over most other countries in the world. You know, um, So we're literally seeing it happen. I During that holiday, I met so many people I had not met before who literally settled in Japan or living in Japan. And again, so it doesn't compute with our antiquated perception of the country. 
Um, yes, it's a drop in the bucket in the grand scheme of things. It may seem that, but this is how, what happens when a country is experiencing terminal domestic indigenous population decline, but still wants to remain an economic and geopolitical dynamo and heavyweight. And part of the answer is this issue. You need to have people. People. Uh, last question, um, which is your, your, your company is very much at the cusp of sort of climate and AI and trying to figure out uh, where the world will move to, and that's, that's the premise of your, of your company. Um, from Skip's perspective, we cover, uh, particularly on the business travel, pressure on, uh, on the large companies to cut back on travel and uh, to, so that they meet their ESU targets. Uh, certainly that was uh, a lot of conversation over the last two, three years as the, as the world was shut. Are you, um, what's your view on cutting uh, the, the, the pressure on, on companies from climate right. activists or governments, etc., right. to cut down on travel? I'm not going to say it's totally misplaced in the sense that, yes, you know, quantitatively air travel emissions and quite frankly, the built environment, buildings, real estate are the largest contributors to greenhouse gases. And so I do think every industry has to do its part. But I don't think that um, it, it, the climate change due to just large scale decades, centuries of industrialization is is the key driver of the accumulated emissions in the atmosphere. And a certain amount of climate change, a significant amount, a staggering and worrying amount, is already baked in. And you could go green tomorrow. You could have fusion-powered aircraft, and you could have net zero buildings, and you could stop building all the coal-fired plants in the world today, meet all your Paris targets. We'd still have significant climate effects that we are going to have to deal with. So the emphasis on decarbonization and net zero is very legitimate, and that's called mitigation. Our business is about adaptation, because climate change is going to happen, it's happening anyway, we have to adapt, we have to relocate populations, we have to build new infrastructure in different places, transform our energy systems, um, and, and reconfigure, in a way, our, our built environment, real estate, real assets. So we're in that space where we're trying to figure out what are the geographies that people are, are most resilient. At the end of the day, we use climate models to figure out what are the most resilient geographies in the world, um, and therefore make the case for why we should be investing in them today to make them habitable, sustainably habitable, not the tragedy of the commons where a billion people trample onto Michigan and Canada and suddenly you've ruined you know, the last pristine geographies in the world. How do you plan in advance for sustainable habitation so that everyone can have that, um, live that dream of a, a stable home that they can own that will appreciate over time? So we think about that that's a long-term value proposition, but we compress it down in terms of time scale to tomorrow. Like, what do you do tomorrow? Where do you invest tomorrow? What's wrong with your portfolio today? How do you value each of your property assets, whether it's one or a million, uh, as a major sovereign wealth fund? And these are the, when you say there's pressure, right? Shareholder activism and so forth. A lot of it is the same entities, the large pension funds, sovereign wealth funds of the world are the ones that are saying on the one hand, yes, you need to go green, they also are the biggest real estate owners in the world, right? And they need to think about the value of those assets. So I think we just have to be holistic about this and balance the pressure on decarbonization with uh, the reality that people still need to move and relocate to enable a better life. Um, and, you know, we fit somewhere in between there. All right. Thank you, Barack. Thank you so much, Ava. That was great. Thank you for the time.
This has been the Skift Podcast. Thank you for listening.